0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lighthart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the texts for the sixth Sunday in the Easter season. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation over these texts, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to
1: the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart. I'm here today with Brian Motes, and this week we also are joined via conference call by Alistair Roberts, uh, who is calling in from uh, the UK, from Durham, his home there, and joining us for this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Alistair.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, It's a delight to have you with us and look forward to the discussion. Uh, We have uh, the readings this week for the sixth uh, Sunday of the Easter season, and the readings on our Missouri Synod Lutheran lectionary are Acts 10, verses 34 to 48, 1 John 5, verses 1 through 8, and then John 15, uh, verses 9 through 17. The latter two readings are continuations of passages that we looked at, uh, or passages that uh, were in the last week's, the previous week's lectionary readings. I want to start with uh, Acts 10. Um, It's uh, part of the Easter season reading, but it's uh, the latter part of the Easter season and is reaching ahead toward ascension. We'll we'll see passages about ascension uh, in the next week's podcast, and uh, of course, past the ascension reaching toward Pentecost. And so Acts 10 is not just about, it's an Easter season reading, and so it has to do with resurrection and the spread of resurrection life uh, through the apostles by the Spirit. But it's also a uh, scene that is reminiscent of Pentecost. So it's, this is part of Peter's encounter with Cornelius. Uh, Peter has preached the gospel. The uh, Gentiles who are listening to him have responded and now uh, he witnesses the the Spirit fall on these Gentiles, and he recognizes that the Lord's uh, the Lord has impart, is, is impartial. He's extending his grace and his Spirit to Gentiles and incorporating them together. Uh, the, the, the church is growing, as Jesus said it would, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then on to the Gentiles, and this is uh, the first time we've seen the Spirit come on a Gentile congregation, a Gentile community. Uh, and it's um, so, a uh, part of the extension of the church by the Spirit.
2: There seems to be a, a series of aftershocks of the Pentecost event within the book of Acts, some on a very grand scale and some on a lesser scale. This is definitely one of the more striking ones. So we have the story of Philip and the, um, the apostles coming to Samaria and the pentecostal type themes there but we also have this event here when there seem to be a series of different orders of the key events associated with the reception of the gospel which differ from these different passages another example is the 12 disciples of john the baptist in ephesus in chapter 19. so in the story of the samaritans i think it's hearing the gospel first then faith and baptism And then the apostles pray for them to receive the spirit, lay their hands upon them, and then they receive the spirit. But here in the story of Cornelius and his household, there's a different order because there is the anticipatory form of faith. They hear the gospel, they come to Christian faith, and then they receive the spirit instantly apart from any laying on of hands. And then they're baptised almost as a response to that, that if the spirit has come upon them as he came upon us, how can we refuse baptism? And it's an interesting question for me how to understand the difference between these orders and what it says about I think one of the things that certainly highlights is the divine prerogative within these events it's not just playing out through an institution but God's work in establishing this new order is highlighted it's not as if the church is the reservoir of salvation it's working out from there but God is knitting the church together forming the church through his initiatory act of giving the Spirit.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point that the, you have the uh, a complex of events that are not uh, uh, don't happen in the same chronological order, and yet the, you do have a complex of events. You have the proclamation of the gospel, you have a response of faith that's part of each event, uh, you have the gift of the Spirit that's part of each event, you have baptism, a, a rite of initiation that's part of each event. Um, so you have this you have this complex event and the the relationship between the church's institutional rituals and the gift of the spirit is is being depicted in a complex way there's not not, not a not a one directional or or simple uh, a, a single a single model that covers all of these all of these cases um and yeah and and what's uh, i think what's uh what I would say is going on here is not uh, not the church as a reservoir of salvation that's kind of piping it out to uh, people outside the church, but rather the Lord gathering the church as the spirit filled, saved community uh, through His Spirit. the uh, The act of baptism, the rite of baptism, is a uh, again an institutional ritual way of incorporating people publicly into that into that body, but it's the uh, spirit forming the church as the community of those who have been gathered and saved rather than the church being it's kind of kind as you say kind of independent reservoir that's uh, piping out uh, salvation or grace to the world around it
2: here I think maybe the case of numbers eleven with the spirit being taken from Moses and placed upon the seventy elders is a helpful analogy because within that event there is the reception of the spirit by the 70 elders and then they prophesy, which they don't do on another occasion. It's seen very much as initiatory and um, something that proclaims their new status, but it's not um, a paradigm for what they'll be doing in a continuous fashion. But then there is this exceptional case of Eldad and Medad who aren't with the other 70 and they're in the camp and then they start prophesying and Joshua asks whether asked Moses whether he should forbid them to prophesy as if they're not working through the proper institutional means, they've not received the Spirit in the same way through Moses, maybe they should be prevented. But in that anomalous event in some ways it helps to clarify exactly what took place in the primary event, which is that it was not just about um, Moses as the mediator of this gift, it was God himself and the ordinary ordinary means was through Moses, but it was not as if God was restricted to acting in that particular fashion, as we see also in the Gospels as well, as Jesus told his disciples not to forbid those who were casting out demons in his name, but were not part of the disciples' company.
1: Yeah, of course, the, the, the uh, other side of the uh, equation that you have to... Uh, you need to guard against is the denigration of the regular means, the denigration of baptism in this case, uh, as if it had no role to play. Because the Spirit is working freely, therefore baptism has no role. Or, or uh, because the Spirit is working freely, uh, that raises a question mark over over the church and the church's uh, institutions and rights, it, as if uh, you're not sure you can really trust what God has said and done through the church, so there's a there's a while acknowledging acknowledging the freedom of the spirit act. Uh, that freedom is not a, a, it's not a violation of God's commitments, and uh, of God's commitment to work through the particular uh, particular means that he's that he's ordained. He's he's told his church to baptize, uh, and he's uh, filled his church as the temple of the spirit. People who hear the gospel and believe are being incorporated into that community of the spirit. You have to avoid. Constraining the spirit, but at the same time you have to avoid attributing uh, dishonesty or duplicity to God. He, he's He's spoken, and when He speaks in His church and through the rites of the church, then He's speaking truly.
2: And as we see the way that the Spirit works in the story of Cornelius, it is striking that the church is, as it were, as it were, sent in Peter to be a witness of His work and to to bear witness to it and also to to practice baptism upon those who have received the Spirit. It's important that they be brought into those ordinary means. So even though the ordinary means are not the only way that God works, they are necessary in that case and it's important that Peter is brought Cornelius rather than Cornelius being saved apart from um, the witness and the um, membership of the church. That is an important part of it. Even though the order is muddled up, there is a tight connection maintained between those events.
1: Yeah, I think that the, the reference to Peter's witness, I think, is uh, just shows another variation of the same kind of pattern. Um, and looking over the passage, I thought of Calvin's question, uh, why is it that God decides to, which is a question Augustine raises also, why is it that God has decided to communicate the gospel through uh, human beings through witnesses. Why not directly reveal himself to each one of us? Uh, and not only do we have witnesses who were um, with Jesus during his ministry, Peter talks about that in this passage, that He was, uh, he's among the witnesses who were with Jesus of Nazareth, anointed by the Spirit, went about doing good, healing those who are oppressed by the devil, and so on. But then after Jesus' resurrection, he doesn't appear to everyone. Uh, Peter makes a point of that in verse 41, Uh, He becomes visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. Well, you know, if if Jesus really were interested in in gaining an audience, why not appear from the dead to everyone? Why appear to selected witnesses, and then have those selected witnesses testify to Jesus? And it it has the same kind of uh, uh, the same kind of pattern that you were describing uh, concerning baptism in the Spirit. Peter is a witness uh, to Jesus' resurrection the Spirit is uh, making that witness effective for these Gentiles. But that witness does come through uh, the ordinary means of a human voice, somebody who actually saw and touched and, as Peter says, ate with Jesus after his resurrection. So there's a there's a, a kind of public institutional dimension to it, along with the, the freedom of the Spirit to act. So both in the proclamation of the Word and in the and in the rite of baptism we have the same kind of pattern. Calvin's answer to the question is God has done this because he wants to humble us um, so that uh, He we're, we have to receive the the good news of the gospel from other human witnesses. We're not um, not put in a position where we have this kind of ecstatic uh, encounter with God directly, but uh, we have to humble ourselves before the witnesses that God has chosen.
2: I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the connection between the witness to Cornelius in chapter 10 and the two conversion story or the two stories that we have beforehand, both of which culminate in an event of baptism and um, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and the story of Saul. Um, there seems to be some sort of connection between these. What Do you have any thoughts on what it might be?
1: Uh, I don't. Perhaps you do. Since you raised the question, you must you must be fishing for something. <laughs>
2: Um, Not in particular. I mean, maybe a connection between uh, Ham, Shem and Japheth, but the three parts of humanity, but beyond that, I'm not entirely sure. Luke seems to have these um, movements within a number of his accounts, whether that's the story of the um, disciples on the road to Emmaus or the story of the Ethiopian eunuch or the story of Saul seem to go through an almost liturgical pattern and lead to an event of whether that's baptism or um, the Lord's Supper or something like that. I wonder whether there's something like that that is taking place here that is connected with the previous chapters, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, um, uh, yeah. the suggestion of uh, Ham Shem and uh, Japheth makes sense to me that you've got the Ethiopian eunuch as the Ham Hemite character Paul himself is the Shemite, and then the Gentiles in Cornelius's house are the uh, descendants of Japheth. Uh, obviously, you have uh, p- perhaps you have an underlying flood typology here. Uh, those are the three sons of Noah who were uh, rescued uh, through the through the flood waters, and uh, here we have a representative from each of those divisions of humanity who's being brought into this this new humanity into this new creation. Through the waters of baptism, you might there might be an extended, not just the the three divisions of humanity, but an uh, in connection with water, a baptismal a baptismal flood typology going
2: on. The other thing within the wider context that um, I find interesting is that this is the last major episode that Peter appears in before um, he largely disappears from the scene. In chapter twelve, he's taken into prison, and He's about to be put to death, but he's set free and then he appears to the disciples, and it's a resurrection type story. But this is really the last major event that is associated with Peter. And I wonder whether um, what the significance of that is, that it should end at this sort of high water mark, that Peter should reach um, Cornelius's household, really pioneer that Gentile mission, and then disappear. Largely disappeared from the scene, apart from a brief appearance later on in chapter fifteen. Uh,
1: I imagine there's other things going on with that with that movement, but uh, part of it is uh, this is obviously a uh, the beginning of a mission uh, specifically to Gentiles beyond beyond Samaria, and uh, we're transitioning into Paul. We've had the overlap of Paul and Peter operating in the same. Uh, 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 through the same chapters, there uh, Paul has already appeared, and Paul has been baptized, and he's uh, begun his ministry to some degree. But after Peter disappears in chapter twelve, then Paul begins his first mi- missionary journey in chapter thirteen, starting from Antioch. And you have this transition from a Petrine, uh, a Petrine phase of the Book of Acts into a Pauline phase of the Book of Acts, as you move uh, out of the uh, out of the uh, Jewish world. You have this transitional thing with uh, Cornelius and then you move into the Gentile world with Paul's various, uh, uh, various missions. As you know, the, um, the scene with, uh, with Peter in chapter 12 it's a culmination of his ministry and then he goes through this death and resurrection and departure sequence in chapter 12 uh, mimicking the uh, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He, uh, Peter goes into prison. He's miraculously freed from prison. He makes a, makes a kind of resurrection appearance. Uh, at the house where the disciples are praying, and then he um, reveals himself to them, and then departs. So he's following the sequence of, of Jesus. So his that that uh, that's another way of uh, emphasizing the it's kind of a capstone to his ministry. Acts 12 brings Peter's career to not a complete com- complete culmination, but uh, to a kind of culmination with a series of events that resemble the last few the last few chapters of the book of Luke. So uh, Peter's been conformed to the uh, life of Jesus.
2: On this front, maybe it's interesting that Jesus in um, John 12, that when the Greeks come up to worship at the feast and want to see Jesus, it's at that point that he declares that the hour has come for him to be glorified.
1: Right. Uh, And um, immediately goes on to say that uh, he's being lifted up so that he can draw all men to himself. So there's a uh, yeah there's a, a um, the the gathering of the gentiles is uh something of the culmination of his ministry if we could uh mention a baptism in water uh brings us to the first john passage uh, first john five, five, 1 through 8 um, which is um, among other things reinforcing the the uh stress that john has placed on love uh, the love of god the love that uh, uh, we have to abide in the love that has to be expressed in love and charity to our brothers and sisters and to our neighbors, uh, and in uh, in this case, John characterized love as obedience. Um, to love is to obey the commandments. We uh, show our love to Jesus by obeying His commandments, as He showed His love for His Father by obeying His Father. But but in that context, uh, John talks about the witness. Of the Spirit with the water and the blood, um, which um, brings back uh, back in the baptismal and pneumatological uh, themes that we were talking about from Acts ten. Yes,
2: yeah, so I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on what exactly is being referred to by the water and the blood, um, and maybe what is the is this connected to the significance that he gives to the witness of the centurion at the cross of the water and blood coming from Christ's side? Are those connected to the two forms of witness here and the two ways in which Christ comes?
1: Well, I will be interested to hear your comments on that, but I'll tell you what what I've (laughs) come to. Um, um, I I do think it's referring back to John 19 and the water and the blood that come from Jesus' side at his his death, which um, John does describe in terms of uh, it describes in that same context talks about the the witness that he bears uh, after uh, Jesus has been pierced in the side john nineteen thirty five says he who has seen has borne witness his witness is true he knows that he's telling the truth so you may also believe um, in the same context uh, uh, john nineteen thirty jesus Receives sour wine, then declares it is finished. He bows his head and gives up the gives up his spirit, which uh, could be a, a way of talking about his death. But I think here is um, a a gift of the spirit. It's not just an, it's not giving up the ghost, uh, but it's rather the the handing over. I, I believe that the uh, uh, the the verb as means to hand over. It's not it's not uh, the spirit leaving him, but the spirit being handed over. So we have the spirit being handed over by Jesus. We have water and blood. And then John dec- says that he's bearing witness to this as true. So that cluster of ideas, I think, connects it. Um, th- those, that cluster of ideas is shared by John 19 and by 1 John 5. So I, I do think that, the, uh, and out of that come sacramental overtones, the, that uh, Jesus is the one who is the new Adam from his side are coming the water and the blood that are going to be uh, uh, instruments to form the new Eve, but I think in in First John five, when I worked on this some years ago, I concluded that um, the oddity of the phrase in verse six, not only by water but also with but by water and blood, that that way of stating things uh, struck me as as unusual, as if somebody might think that Jesus, the son the son of God, came only by water. What would that mean, um, rather than by water and blood? I connected that back to the um, the baptism of Jesus, uh, which is the revelation of his sonship, the gift of the Spirit to Jesus, uh, his anointing by the Spirit to carry out his ministry. Uh, but Jesus comes not just by water, not just by that original baptism in water, but the Son of God is revealed. Jesus Christ is uh, shown to be Son of God by blood as well as water. So it's the baptism the baptism. Uh, by John at the beginning of his ministry. It's the baptism in blood at the end of his ministry. Um, and I think that fits with the the polemic that John has in uh, his first letter where he's polemicizing against those who doubt that Jesus came in the flesh uh, and implicitly polemicizing against those who would doubt that Jesus died in the flesh. Um, so it's, uh, our, the Messiah has to come not just, by, not just by water, but by water and blood. He, it comes not only by the... Uh, outpouring of the Spirit on him, but also by uh, his baptism in blood
2: on the cross. There also seems to be, in the story of Christ, there are there is a threefold baptism. The baptism in the Jordan by John, the baptism of his death, as described by Mark, and then the baptism of the church at Pentecost. And each one of those is connected to the forms of witness mentioned here. So the Spirit connected with Pentecost. The spirit in the church bears witness to Christ. Um, The blood bears witness in his death. And then the water associated with the witness of John the Baptist and of the um, Father and the Spirit in the theophanic event associated with the baptism. And in John's Gospel, it seems to me that each one of these events are associated with um, key moments of witness, So they're not just seen as important events, but events where the witness is accentuated and highlighted and we're called to pay attention to them, that something significant is taking place here. So, for instance, the water and the blood coming from Christ's side, the witness that occurs there is underlined and highlighted, that there's something significant that happened there that we need to pay attention to. Likewise with the witness of John the Baptist at the beginning, what he saw at the baptism of Christ is foregrounded within John's gospel in a particular way, um, and each of those, I think, it underlines what we see John doing here in his epistle, um, referring to those different witnesses and how they bear witness to Christ.
1: Yeah, uh, that's that's very helpful. Thanks. That and and I, I've been teaching on Revelation this morning, so the the way that uh, witness shades off into uh, martyr in our sense um, has, has been on my mind all morning, but that uh, that that fits with the sequence you're talking about. That uh, Jesus is identified by uh, these uh, these three baptisms, as it were, uh, that are bearing witness to to uh, and, and three forms of witness. Uh, and uh, as disciples of Jesus, we're being conformed to Jesus in order to be witnesses be witnesses not only verbally, but also be witnesses in life and in death, as Jesus was. Um, Which, among other things, uh, this is the commandment that the Lord calls us to, to bear witness to him, uh, to love him, to keep his commandments, and uh, even in the face of potentially dangerous threats, to uh, bear faithful witness uh, to Jesus. We can move on to uh, just to close out for a few minutes on uh, John 15, part of the Jesus' discussion of himself as the vine. He's the true Israel. Uh, The vine is an image of Israel transplanted from Egypt into the land. Uh, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5. Um, Jesus is that true Israel and his disciples are branches in that vine. Uh, They're bearing the fruit. Uh, That's the image that Jesus uses earlier in the chapter and then he goes on to describe uh, how the branches abide in the vine and are able to bear fruit, particularly by keeping command, uh, keeping His commandments. The analogy between Jesus' obedience to the Father and the disciples' obedience to Jesus is actually coming out of John fifteen. I had that conflated with First John five a moment ago, but that Jesus is uh, brings up that analogy as I've just as I've obeyed my Father and uh, I've shown my love for my Father in in my obedience. So, uh, you're to obey my commandments. Uh, one of the one of the uh, Uh, interesting turns of this part of uh, Jesus' discourse of uh, this sermon of encouragement, I guess, to his disciples, is the way that he characterizes his disciples as friends. Uh, Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And then he declares that you are my friends, which means he's laid down his life for them. Uh, But then he goes on to talk about that friendship, not only as uh, that not only means that they're the recipients of his self-gift, but also means that they have a certain status along with him. They're no longer slaves, but because Jesus is disclosing to them what he's doing, they have the status of friends, and that that goes uh, reaches back into the Old Testament institution of uh, the the king's friend, the royal friend. Uh, David has. Uh, a friend uh, who is a close counselor, somebody who has his ear, somebody who gives advice. And then Jesus is here designating his disciples, those who abide in him by obeying his commandments, uh, as his friends. He's brought them into this close fellowship, who not, not just as servants who are doing his will, but as friends who cons- with whom he consults uh, and who have... Um, uh, have a, 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 place, a, a place in his council as it were.
2: There it might also be worth thinking about the connections with Abraham and Moses both of whom were described as the friends of God um, and in both cases we see um, I think Abraham is described that way in James 2 and Moses in um, Exodus 33 if memory serves but in both cases, God speaks to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, and God speaks to Abraham in a way that discloses His counsel to him. For instance, in the discussion of the fate of Sodom and other, event, and other events like that, that God would not disclo- would not um, hide that event from him, and in the same way as God consults with Moses concerning the fate of Israel, that. There is something prophetic about this relationship as well. It's a relationship like the king with his closest advisors, but also it's like the relationship between God and his prophets that God does nothing without consulting his prophets
1: yes uh, that's that's exactly right. This is an aspect of uh, prophetic status, which means both that God is disclosing to his friends. Jesus is disclosing to his disciples what he's going to do. But prophets are not just uh, recipients of revelation, but they're also, uh, they have the privilege of the floor in God's court. They can speak. And so, um, and uh, the examples that you gave, uh, Abraham is a a friend of God. That friendship is evident in his intercession for Sodom, and Moses is a friend of God, uh, does he call that in a context where he's going to intercede for Israel after the incident with the golden calf? So there's a—the uh, not the, the disclosure, as it were, goes both ways. Jesus is disclosing himself and his plans to his disciples as his friends. And then he's uh, also willing to hear them and receive their counsel um, in—, in uh, in our uh in, in practical terms this uh this takes place in in prayer uh prayer is a communion with God prayer is we presenting our needs before the lord but I th- we're we're rightly we're, we're supposed to think of our our prayers also in this kind of royal context we 're members of the court Jesus has designated us as his friends and calls us to uh, give our uh, counsel to him when we're conformed to his word and conformed to his desires then our counsel is uh, is according to his will uh that's what that's our prayer should be our prayers should be conformed to what uh, what Jesus desires and uh, as as we become more Christ like then our 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 counsel to him is uh is conformed to that will
2: within this passage Jesus also seems to be speaking about some analogy between and connection between his relationship with the Father and his disciples' relationship with him. So verse 10, for instance, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Which reminds me of um, chapter 12, 49-50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is an everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And the relationship between Christ and the Father's command is connected with our relationship with Christ and his command and is part of a deeper theme of union, not just um, mere obedience and a, a sort of slavish following of some rule there's an authorizing word I think as the father's life-giving command and as the son enacts that and affects that um, we st- encounter the father in him but also as we follow his command His, which is not just again a set of rules but is an authorizing word that we live out um, we abide in his love and we experience something of the the movement as the father has sent the son so he sends us that progression from christ's ministry to ours and our participation in him in that command but i wonder whether our tendency when we hear the word command is to recoil from that its connotations of law and um, restriction and But yet, within the Gospel of John, it seems to me that that has a very positive flavor, the command. It is very much expressive of the connection between the Father and the Son. And here, I think it extends that into our relationship with Christ.
1: Yeah, a a couple of thoughts occur to me. One is that uh, you have a similar kind of pattern going on throughout John 17, where Jesus is, on the one hand, describing his unique relationship with his Father. He was sent by the Father Uh, The Father is in him and he's in the Father. Uh, He has glory with the Father that uh, was shared before the foundation of the world. And yet, as the prayer in John 17 goes on, Jesus describes how virtually every one of those unique privileges is shared out with his disciples. So his disciples are also sent, just as Jesus was sent. His disciples, he bestows the glory that he has from his Father on the disciples. And uh, the disciples are... uh, Become part of that uh, uh, paracletic uh, union that the, the 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 father is in the son and the son is in the disciples uh, and he goes goes through the uh, series of uh, descriptions of the mutual indwelling of not just of the father and the son but of the father of the disciples in the father and the son so um, yeah so that pattern I think is 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 running through there I think too that what you're saying is that. Uh, what you're saying is that uh, uh, the commandment in the in John's gospel has a paternal context not a uh not a uh, legislator context uh, the father commands the son uh, Jesus commands his disciples who he's designated as friends and there's this uh, uh, there's this uh, familial relationship that's the context within which commands are being delivered, I, I just preached on the beginning of the Ten Commandments yesterday, and uh, I uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, grammatical oddities of the Ten Commandments is that they're all phrased in terms of uh, uh, they're, they're they're all phrases second person singular masculine singular. So it's as if Yahweh is addressing the commandments to an individual a male human being. They're not. You all should have no other gods before me, but Thou shalt have no other God before Me. Uh, to use the old English singular, um, and I, I I concluded that what the what that implies is that the Lord is speaking to Israel as son. Uh, the son is the one who's been delivered from Egypt. The son is the the son Israel is the people that's gathered before Him at the foot of Sinai. And so, from the beginning, when God begins to give His commandments, it has this kind of familial connotation, um, rather than uh, a uh, uh, rather than a legislator or even a. Our Father is the King, but uh, we're princes, and so He's addressing us as His princely sons. Uh, that's the context where commands are being delivered.
2: I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the prominence of the theme of joy within these chapters.
1: Well, well. As always, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts too. Um, <laughs> I, I was I was struck by the the connection that uh, uh, Jesus makes, uh, the movement that he that, that you have in uh, John 15 directly from keeping the commandments, abiding in love, and the fulfillment or the making full of the joy of Jesus. So in uh, in the disciples' obedience, Jesus' joy is made full, uh, and which in part is reinforcing the point you were making earlier. That uh, we we have these wrong connotations in our minds to the the language of command and obedience, uh, where it's uh, kind of cold and clinical. Uh, but that's not the context that uh, where Jesus is. Uh, that's not the context for Jesus' uh, use of these this uh, language. Uh, it's uh, you keep the commandments as part of abiding in love, and keeping the commandments is uh, results in in joy. Uh, And again, it's putting it within that familiar and and personal context rather than in um, what we would think of as a strictly legal context.
2: Joy also seems to be something that um, there there is an eschatological flavor to it in certain respects, that it's something that must be fulfilled. It's something that comes as um, the child is born into the world, for instance, in chapter sixteen. And it's it's almost as if it's the harvest of um, the following of the commandment that, and the harvest of Christ's words as they have their work within us. It's the harvest of that fruit as it grows and it brings delight. Um, and in the same way as grapes of the vine are supposed to be formed into wine that gives joy. So all of these teachings and all of this obedience that is being established is something that will ultimately lead to feasting and joy and more generally within the gospel i think there is this strong theme of christ as the bridegroom who comes who bring who comes to bring joy a joy that will be made full at the end and he's the one who brings birth as well which is also an event of joy but within this, there's this hope held out to us of the depths and fullness of joy as we follow this path. Um, but it's a theme that I don't feel I've done any any justice to. I'd like to come to grips with it a bit more because there's something very important there that I'm not quite sure I have a handle on.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the point about uh, the image of the uh, laboring woman in, in chapter 16 uh that's uh Jesus bring that brings that up in a, in a context where he's describing the the immediate future of his disciples they're going to go through tribulation uh, but like a woman in, in travail in labor she that's going to end up in in joy um, and then uh, that's that fits with the uh, latter part of chapter 15 into chapter 16 where Jesus is telling the disciples that they're going to experience all the Hostility and opposition and hatred that he himself experienced. If they're going to be his friends, they're going to go through the same sorts of things. Joy is eschatological. Uh, there's a there's something beyond the travail that they're looking forward to. That uh, there's a there's a new birth that's going to come beyond that. Um, but that uh, is not just it's not just as it's not just a simple sequence of um, travail and pain, anguish, and then. When the birth comes, there's joy. The anticipation of the joy of the outcome infuses the experience of tribulation. So we can rejoice in our tribulations, not because the tribulations are pleasant or joyful in themselves, but because the joy of that future fulfillment uh, is reaching back, as it were, into the present experience of our tribulation. So, And again, that's you know, Jesus went to the cross for the joy that's set before him. Uh, he's in anguish on the cross. He suffers the burden of our sins, and yet uh, the joy of anticipating the outcome, the joy of his resurrection, the joy of his return to his Father, uh, infuses that experience of anguish. Um, and, and and in a sense, the, the the anticipated joy is the motivation that moves him through the tribulation onto the fulfillment. It's for the joy that's set before him that he endures the cross
2: and it's very striking that this should be these should be the themes that Christ is meditating on immediately before the cross and communicating to his disciples that it really solidifies that message of hebrews 12 that it it was that joy that was foremost in his consciousness at that particular point
1: well thank you alistair for joining us uh, for this lectionary podcast uh, these have been the readings for the th- sixth Sunday of the Easter season. Uh, And uh, thank you again, Alistair. It's been great to be with you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis.